I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Graham Abbott and this is Classics Unlocked a program brought to you by Universal Music and Classics Direct. The plays of William Shakespeare are rightly regarded as one of the greatest treasures of English literature. It's not surprising, then, that they've inspired other creative minds in all sorts of ways in the 400 years they've existed. Operas, ballets, musicals and films have all drawn inspiration from the powerful dramas and beautiful poetry of the Bard. In this program, I want to explore three operatic adaptations of Shakespeare plays by one of the most important opera composers of all time, Giuseppe Verdi. Over a career spanning more than 50 years, Verdi wrote more than 30 operas, many of which are among the most popular and important works of their kind. Il Trovatore, Rigoletto, La Traviata and Aida, to name just four, are staples of the operatic repertoire. It would be unthinkable to consider opera performance today without them. Verdi took inspiration from the works of Shakespeare three times in his career, once fairly early on, and then decades later for his final two operas. The composer spoke little or no English and, like many people, knew of Shakespeare's works in translation. Another great composer who adored Shakespeare but spoke no English was Berlioz. Verdi is on record as having expressed deep admiration for Shakespeare and he read his works from an early age. At the start of his career as a composer of opera, Verdi worked hard, very hard. He produced 22 operas in 16 years, a time he called his galley years. In the midst of this, in 1847, he produced Macbeth, or Macbeth in Italian, his 10th opera. It was premiered at the Teatro alla Pergola in Florence, a beautiful theatre which still exists. The libretto was adapted from the play by Francesco Maria Piave, who worked on a dozen operas with Verdi, 
with later additions to the text by Andrea Maffei. We heard the opening of the prelude to Macbeth at the start of the program. It's easy to see what appealed to Verdi and his audiences in Macbeth. There's a strong supernatural element, including ghostly apparitions, and in an era where mad scenes were all the rage, there's madness both in Macbeth's reaction to seeing the ghost of Banquo and in Lady Macbeth's guilt-induced sleepwalking scene. And the play provides for arias, duets and crowd scenes. But the opera notably omits Shakespeare's powerful moment of comic relief by not including the porter scene. Many operatic treatments of Shakespeare in the 19th century took major liberties with the plots. There are a number of versions of Othello, Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet, for instance, which have happy endings. Piave's text for Verdi, though, stays reasonably close to the original and, like the original play, tends to focus on Lady Macbeth rather than her husband. Verdi later said that there were really only three main characters in his Macbeth. Macbeth, Lady Macbeth and the witches. In Shakespeare's play, there are three witches and their prophecies are central to the plot. Verdi's opera has a three-part chorus of witches whose music is sinister and gripping. to write the opera once the famous baritone Felice Varesi was engaged to sing the title role. He was also the first Rigoletto and the first Giorgio Germont in Traviata. Lady Macbeth, on the other hand, is the true agent of evil in the play, and the music Verdi composed for her is hugely demanding, both vocally and dramatically. In 1847, the role was sung by Marianna Barbieri Nini, one of the most famous sopranos of the day. 
She sang major roles for Donizetti and Rossini, as well as creating a number of Verdi roles. Her specific gifts are reflected in the music for Lady Macbeth. She had a wide range spanning the soprano and mezzo-soprano registers. She was famous for her dramatic acting and singing, and she had the ability to sing highly florid music, described as coloratura singing. These make the role supremely challenging for any singer who takes it on today. This is the end of Lady Macbeth's famous and notoriously difficult sleepwalking scene in the fourth act, in which she is observed by her maid and her doctor trying to wash imaginary blood from her hands.
On a number of occasions throughout his career, Verdi adapted his operas for performance in Paris. This always meant adding ballet music, whether or not it had anything to do with the plot, as ballet was utterly essential to any opera performed in the French capital. They were sung in French as well, and Verdi often took the opportunity to substantially revise a work when he was adapting it for Paris. In 1865, 18 years after its highly successful premiere in Florence, Macbeth was revised by Verdi in preparation for performances in Paris. The revised version was written with an Italian text, but this was translated into French for the Paris performances. Apart from some substantial rewrites and the addition of a ballet for the witches, the most notable change comes at the end. In the original version, Macbeth is mortally wounded by Macduff in their duel and, after singing a short aria while mortally wounded, dies on stage. In the Paris version, the fight with Macduff starts on stage but continues off stage, and Macbeth's demise happens out of sight. Macduff returns to report that he has killed Macbeth and the opera ends with a chorus praising Macduff and acclaiming Malcolm as the new king. The new version for Paris was not a success, and Macbeth thereafter had a chequered history until the mid-20th century, from which time it entered the regular repertoire. Nowadays, it's usual to perform the later version in Italian, although some productions prefer a hybrid version of the final scene, including both Macbeth's aria before dying on stage, from the original version, and the final chorus from the Paris version. This is Macbeth's aria from the 1847 version. Oh, 
Another 15 or so operas and nearly a quarter of a century separate the original version of Macbeth from Verdi's Aida, in some respects the grandest of Italian grand operas. Verdi was determined to retire from operatic composition after Aida, although he didn't stop composing completely. The Glorious Requiem was written in the years following Aida, but as far as opera was concerned, Aida was going to be it. By the time of the Requiem's premiere in 1874, Verdi was 60. He was one of the most famous composers in the world, and his operas were being performed all over Europe, as well as in America and even Australia. Yet pressure was brought to bear on him by his publisher, Giulio Ricordi, to consider writing a new opera. The composer resisted stubbornly for a decade. But slowly he was worn down. Ricordi played a patient game, and in this he was ably assisted by Arrigo Boito. Boito was not only a composer, but also a fine poet. Verdi liked and trusted Boito, and by 1879 he was warming to the idea of writing something new, albeit very cautiously. A few drafts of a new opera text by Boito passed back and forth between the two, but even then, it wasn't until another five years had passed that in 1884, at the age of 70, Verdi actually started work on Boito's masterful adaptation of Shakespeare's Othello. Work on Otello, to give it its Italian title, happened in bursts of activity followed by long breaks. It was finally finished in November 1886 after two and a half years' work. And, as might be imagined, Verdi was a totally different composer at the age of 70 to the one he was at 34 when he wrote Macbeth. Opera itself had changed, largely due to the influence of Wagner. Born in 1813, the same year as Verdi, Wagner had died the year before Otello was started. His influence on European music, and especially opera, was profound. And even though Verdi would have regarded himself as completely untouched by Wagner, there's no escaping the fact that opera composition across the board had been changed forever by The Ring and Parsifal. Gone was the breaking up of an act into separate numbers, and arias and ensembles no longer stopped the action to provide a musical show for the audience. True, these developments had been underway since the time of Mozart, but by the 1880s, an act of an opera was now conceived as a single musical unit, not a collection of smaller pieces. Wagner showed the dramatic and musical potential of such an approach, and Verdi's later works reflect this in his own way. Otello was premiered at La Scala Milan in February 1887, and from the very start it was an enormous success. Productions in other cities soon followed, including Paris in 1894, for which Verdi wrote a short ballet sequence. But this is generally regarded as unnecessary and is almost never used today when the opera is performed. Otello is a gripping masterpiece from start to finish, and gripping is certainly an apt description of the start of the piece, which omits any sort of overture and immediately describes a storm at sea which threatens to shatter Otello's ship.
major roles in the opera, pronounced in Italian as Otello, Iago and Desdemona, are among the most daunting and challenging in the repertoire. As with the role of Lady Macbeth, it's the evil Iago around whom the plot revolves in both the play and the opera. The French baritone Victor Morel created the role, and ever since, Iago's blasphemous credo has been the epitome of malevolence-made music.
Marcello requires a powerful tenor voice with enormous stamina, while at the same time needing a true actor who can show the subtleties of the man's descent into an insane jealousy, which leads him to murder the woman he adores. And that woman, Desdemona, requires a soprano of superlative acting and vocal abilities too.
After the premiere of Otello in 1887, the 74-year-old composer confided to Arrigo Boito that he yearned to write something light-hearted. After having relentlessly massacred so many heroes and heroines, I have at last the right to laugh a little. Verdi had only once before attempted a comedy, and that was nearly half a century earlier, in 1840, with his second opera, Un giorno di regno, King for a Day. It had been a flop, but of course now he was a completely different composer. Unbeknownst to Verdi, Boito started working on a new libretto. He drew on three Shakespeare plays, The Merry Wives of Windsor and the two parts of Henry IV. Common to all these plays is the character of the fat knight, Sir John Falstaff, and the new libretto, a comedy about the knight and his bumbling attempts to seduce two married women, took his name, Falstaff. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Boito sent Verdi his libretto and the composer loved it. He was concerned about his advanced years and wondered if he had the energy to complete the work. But by mid-1889, aged 75, he was resolved to put those fears behind him and get started. Work on the opera took about three years, and again, La Scala was the location for the premiere in February 1893. The plot of Falstaff is largely taken from The Merry Wives of Windsor, and the title role is a gift to the baritone repertoire. At the premiere, it was sung by Victor Morel, who had created Iago and the whole opera shows that Verdi was rejuvenated by the task of its composition. It contains brilliant melodic and rhythmic invention, and ideas tumble forth on every page. Verdi, the composer many said could never write a comedy, proved the naysayers wrong in this sparkling, delightful work. This is the end of the first act. Oh, <laughs> 
this was a new Verdi that his audiences didn't expect. And, bizarre as it may seem to us now, Falstaff was not the great ongoing success it should have been. Initial reception in Milan and elsewhere was ecstatic, but within a decade it had fallen into neglect. Despite the efforts of Arturo Toscanini in Milan and New York in the early years of the 20th century and Thomas Beecham in London in 1919, audiences stayed away. It wasn't until Toscanini returned as music director in Milan in 1921 that things began to change. He performed Falstaff there every year from 1921 to 1929. Later conductors who championed the work included Tullio Serafin, Herbert von Karajan, George Schulte, Leonard Bernstein and Carlo Maria Giolini. Falstaff is now firmly established in the mainstream operatic canon and regularly performed the world over. After the premiere of Falstaff, Verdi still had another eight years to live, but he wrote no more operas. His final years did see the creation of four gems of sacred music, two small unaccompanied pieces, an Ave Maria and the Laudi alla Vergine Maria, and two larger settings for chorus and orchestra, a Stabat Mater and a Te Deum. These were published together as Quattro Pezzi Sacri, four sacred pieces. He lived just long enough to make it into the 20th century. He died on the 27th of January 1901 at the age of 87. One of the other accusations levelled at Verdi during his life was that as a composer of opera, he was unable to write in more academic forms such as the fugue. Verdi put that myth to rest in the music which ends Falstaff, a brilliant complex fugue for all the cast, setting the words all the world's a joke, and man is born a clown. He who laughs last, laughs best. 
We'll end this program with that brilliant snub of the nose, which brilliantly ends a brilliant theatrical career. The recordings of Verdi's three Shakespearean operas used in this program were all released on the Deutsche Grammophon label. In Macbeth, we heard a 1976 recording led by Piero Cappuccilli in the title role and Shirley Verrett as Lady Macbeth, with the chorus and orchestra of La Scala Milan, conducted by Claudio Abbado. Otello was recorded in Paris in 1994 with Placido Domingo in the title role, Sergei Leifakus as Iago and Cheryl Studer as Desdemona, with Myung Hun Chang conducting the orchestra and chorus of the opera Bastille. Finally, in Falstaff, we heard extracts from a legendary recording conducted by Carlo Maria Giolini in 1982, featuring Renato Brusson in the title role with the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra. Technical production for Classics Unlocked is by Tom Ford, and my name's Graham Abbott. Happy listening. Burlone, 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 burlone